Now I wonder if you ever feel discouraged. Ever feel like you're just losing a life more than you're winning? Ever feel like that? I won't ask for a show of hands, but I know I certainly do. Maybe you've been involved in uh, some kind of projects. You're working on something, you're maybe a part of a team, or you're involved in a piece of work, and it really matters to you, and you really care about it, you believe in it, and it's important to you that it succeeds, and you just experience a setback, or a frustration, or a disappointment. You just feel, ugh, discouraged. Or maybe it's a relationship, someone that you really care about, someone that you love, and it's really important to you, now that relationship goes in the right direction, and you're moving forwards, and I don't know, you have a disagreement, or you have an argument, or there's a misunderstanding, and some kind of tension comes into the relationship, and you feel like you're moving backwards, and you're just discouraged. Anyone feel like that? Anyone ever feel discouraged? I know I do. And I know for me, when I feel discouraged, it kind of has a tendency to seep into all other areas of life. Anyone get that? You're discouraged in one area, and suddenly, in every area of life, you feel just demotivated, and like you just don't want to do life anymore. You're just discouraged. Well, that's what we're going to be looking at this afternoon. The topic that we're going to be thinking about is discouragement. Specifically, uh, what we can do when we're discouraged, and what God does when we're discouraged. So, if you've ever felt like that, um, if you perhaps feel like that at the moment, you're at church this afternoon, that's how you're feeling, that's where you're at, then listen up, because um, God might have something to say to you this afternoon. So, we're in the book of Acts, and we've been looking at uh, Acts from about chapter 13 onwards over the last few weeks. Um, today we're in chapter 18. Thank you, Sarah, for reading that out to us earlier. Um, we're, we're, chapter 18 is kind of the end of Paul's second missionary journey. So his second journey goes from kind of chapter 16 to 18. Uh, the last couple of weeks we've been looking at this journey and we see lots of encouragements. So Peter preached a couple of weeks ago about Paul in Philippi and he saw three people from three very different sort of social groups saved. Lydia, the trader, the slave girl, and Cornelius, the jailer. Really encouraging. And then we saw last week um, in Acts 17 how Paul travels through Thessalonica, through Berea, through Athens. In every place he goes, he preaches, and there's some kind of response. So God's doing things. It's exciting. But in the midst of all that, as well as the encouragements, I think there are real discouragements for Paul. If we read the text of Acts 16 to 18, we'll see. So Paul knew the reality of discouragement in his life. Right at the start of his second journey in Acts chapter 16, um, Paul and one of his closest colleagues, Barnabas, they had a big falling out. They'd worked together and they had a disagreement and they separated. That would have been really hard for Paul. Him and Barnabas had been through a lot together. He would have been discouraged by that. Um, he he travelled on and he, he had plans for his journey. He wanted to go to Asia and a place called Bithynia and the Holy Spirit wouldn't let him. Again, that would have been frustrating. Well, why can't I do what I want to do? Discouragement. He goes to Philippi, he's locked up, he's put in prison. He goes to Thessalonica, Berea. He meets more opposition. The people drive him away. He gets to Athens. He preaches. And there's some good response, but a lot of people dismiss him. They don't want to know him. And he's alone. So all these, all these things are going on, as well as the good things. Paul would have known real discouragement in his, his ministry. And just notice for a minute, all the discouragement I've just mentioned for Paul, they're all kind of related to the fact that he's a Christian. They're specifically related to the fact that he follows Jesus. And I think it's worth saying that. There is a specific kind of discouragement that's only felt by Christians. Because if you've ever become a Christian, you've met Jesus, and you've come to him, and you've come to him on your knees, and you've come to him broken, and you know your own sin, you know your need for him, and he's lifted you up, and he's given you new life and freedom and love, and you've been changed by him, right? If you're a Christian, 
you've been changed by Jesus and you want everyone else to know that. You want other people that you love and care about to also be changed by him. So maybe you put yourself out there and you share your faith with those around you. And maybe you experience rejection. There's a kind of unique kind of discouragement that comes with the message of Jesus being rejected that only Christians feel. And it's worth saying that up front. I think it's worth everyone being aware of that. Um, If you're here today and you're a Christian, or if you're not a Christian, um, the Bible never promises that being a Christian will be easy. The Bible never promises an easy life. It actually promises it will be discouraging at times. It will be frustrating. There will be setbacks. It won't be easy. And we all need to know that. And maybe you've experienced yourself some of the kinds of discouragements that Paul experienced here. Maybe you've had a, a disagreement with a close Christian friend or someone who's, you've done lots of um, work with, you've partnered with, and it's just hard. You've gone your separate ways and it's discouraging. Maybe you've had all kinds of plans like Paul had and the Holy Spirit has just closed the doors on the things that you wanted to do that you felt like you should be doing. It's discouraging. Maybe like Paul did, you've experienced opposition from people who just don't like Christians, who don't like Jesus, and you've been rejected. Maybe you've just had that experience of um, offering someone Jesus and just they don't care, just apathy, just dismissed you. Maybe like Paul felt alone in Athens, you just feel alone. Maybe in the past you felt alone, maybe even right now, as a Christian, you feel alone. And if you haven't experienced those things, perhaps in the months ahead you will, as we continue to emerge from lockdown and enter into this, this, this world that we were all sort of half familiar with, for half familiar with and half half not. Maybe those are the kinds of discouragements that you will feel in the months ahead. The Bible promises us that we will experience this, but but before you think, oh, this is a bit of a downer, this talk's a bit, this, a bit negative, there is a big but, because though the Christian does experience a unique kind of discouragement, the Christian also knows a unique presence of God with them in the midst of it. And that makes all the difference. In the midst of frustration and setback and difficulty, the Christian knows with them the presence of God. And that's what we're going to see in Acts 18. That's what we're going to see. And we're going to see just how it makes all the difference for Paul as he experiences some of these discouragements for himself. And we're going to see that the encouragements far outweigh, far outweigh anything difficult, anything frustrating we can experience. So, Acts 18, if you haven't already got it open, please do. Page 927 in the Church Bibles. Paul is alone. He's, he's discouraged. And we're going to see in this passage two things that Paul does in response to his circumstances and two things that God does. All right? And we're going to learn from that two things we can do when we experience discouragement and two things God can do for us. All right? That's where we're going. So let's, let's read Acts 18 from verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. So the first thing Paul does is he finds friends. Isn't that interesting? The first thing the text tells us that he does, he's in a new city, he goes from Athens to Corinth. What does it say, verse 2? And he found a Jew named Aquila, his wife Priscilla. First thing he does, he's in a new city, he's alone, he's got no income, he's in all likelihood quite discouraged. He finds friends. And not any old friends, but friends who share a trade with him. He finds Priscilla and Aquila, they're tent makers. He's a tent maker too. And so he gets busy, he gets to work, he sets up a trade. We could ask the question, why here? Why does Paul start tent making in Corinth? 
He was in kind of a similar situation in Athens, on his own, new city, no income. Why not set up a business there? Well, there's a few possibilities. He might have seen that Corinth was a particularly strategic location for, for planting a church. It was a, a big city. It was at the intersection of some big trade routes. And it was a sort of political, economic, administrative, uh, significant place. So maybe he thought, good place to set up a base and stay here for a few minutes. So I'll, I'll set up my trade. Maybe he wanted to um, make the point that he was someone who worked for his living and didn't just take advantage of others. Um, he might have seen it as a strategic opportunity. So uh, there was a thing called the Isthmian Games that was held in Corinth every other year, a bit like the Olympics, smaller scale, that loads of people would have come to Corinth every couple of years and needed tents to stay in. He might have thought, well, tent making in this place is an opportunity to share Jesus with lots of people from lots of backgrounds and lots of places. We don't know why he did it, but the point is, he didn't do it alone. For whatever reason, he decided, I'm going to set up a, a trade here in this city, but he went and found friends friends who did the same sort of thing as him, um, to live with and work with them. Now, I, I love this, because the, the whole reason that Priscilla and Aquila were there in Corinth would have felt discouraging to them, right? They were, they were uh, Jewish Christians who lived in Rome, and they were happy there, but there were riots in Rome, because the Jewish population were angry about this new teaching about Jesus. So Claudius, the governor of Rome, ordered all the Jews, whether they're Christian Jews or not, to leave Rome. And Priscilla and Aquila are amongst them. So their whole lives have been uprooted. Um, they're tent makers, they think we need to set up a business somewhere. Corinth seems as good a place as any, it's an important city. So they go there and they just happen to be there when Paul turns up and he's able to stay with them and live with them and work with them. So they weren't planning to move to Corinth, but once they got there, they looked for opportunities to serve and they were used by God in, in great ways. Now, we could spend the whole message talking about Priscilla and Aquila because they're fascinating people and do have, a, have more of a read about them, but we can't do that. We're not going to do that. But I do want to just take a moment to mention a couple of lessons I think we can learn from these two people, just a little sidebar, just for a couple of minutes. So I think the first lesson we can learn from Priscilla and Aquila is to trust God with where he puts us. Trust God with where he puts you. See, God had a purpose for where he put Priscilla and Aquila, for them, when they left Rome, it would have felt frustrating. What's God doing? What's he up to? But he had a purpose in being in Corinth. He wanted to use them there to, to help Paul to establish this base for his ministry. And he's got a purpose for where he puts you as well. In all the circumstances of your life, where you live, the town you live in, the street you live in, the house you live in, the work you do, the work that you don't do, uh, the people that you spend time with, the people that are in your life for the long term, the people that are in your life for the short term, the people that are in your life for just a day, for just an hour. He's got a purpose in every place he puts you. Trust God with that. Even if it doesn't feel like your plan, it's not the way you would have done it, trust him, he's got a purpose for it. Second lesson I think we can learn from these two characters is just the blessing it is when people not only trust God with where he's put them, but they're ministry-minded where he's put them. What do I mean by that? I mean just having the mindset to think wherever you are, how can I serve God here? How can I speak of him? How can I direct others towards Jesus in the place I am? That's what I mean by ministry-minded. That's what Priscilla and Aquila were. They found themselves in Corinth. They thought, right, what can we do to serve God here? What work has he got for us? They met Paul. They invited him in. They established a church. A bit later in the chapter, we didn't read it, but Paul goes off to Ephesus, takes them with him. And then he leaves them there in Ephesus. And they just happen to be there when a chap called Apollos comes to Ephesus. Now, Apollos is a gifted man, a learned man, but he only kind of knows half the gospel, so they take him aside and they teach him more fully about Jesus. Again, they just happen to be there, but they're ministry-minded, they're looking 
for opportunities to how to serve Jesus? That's a great question. Wherever I am, how can I be about God's work? What's he got for me? It's a real blessing for, for us as a church to have so many people in the church who have this kind of mindset. Where am I? Where's God placed me? What can I do to serve him? It's, it's great. And the more people that have that mindset, the more blessing we can be to each other. So, a couple of lessons from those two. Do you read that one if you want to? So, Paul finds uh, these two uh, characters, Priscilla and Aquila. He lives with them. Um, and he goes out of his way to find them. I think that's what the text emphasises. Verse 2, it says, Paul found a Jew. And then at the end of the verse, if you see at the end of verse 2, it says again, and he went to see them. I think the text is emphasising for us Paul's initiative because he knows that he needs friends. He knows whatever God's got for him in this city. He can't do it alone. He needs people around him. Uh, this is so important for us to hear, I think. It's so important. The Bible doesn't have any category for a Christian living the Christian life on their own. There's just no category for it. Christians are saved to be in a community. We're made to be part of a, of a church family, a local church. We're meant to be in a group of people. It's kind of fundamental. A fundamental thing about being a Christian is that you're connected to other Christians. Um, I sometimes like to imagine the picture of a battlefield. Um, try and imagine if you can a picture of a battlefield. Uh, maybe you've seen a film with a battlefield in it. I often go back to the scene at the start of Gladiator. Anyone seen Gladiator? You must have seen Gladiator. The, the, the scene at the start where um, Russell Crowe's character is a Roman general. He goes around, he's preparing his troops for a battle, and they're um, about to sort of fight against the barbarians. And he's, he's got his sword out and he's riding his horse, and um, they're all in this mass group and they, they charge together through the trees. And, the first, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes of the film, there's no music. It's just a soundtrack of swords and spears and death. Um, and it's, it's brutal. It's a brutal start to a film. But imagine that kind of scene, right? You're in a battlefield. And uh, just imagine you're uh, a soldier in uh, Russell Crowe. I've forgotten the character, Maximus, to me. Um, yeah, in his, in his army, anyway. And uh, you're, you're, you decide suddenly that you don't want to be fighting with the rest of the troops. You want to go and fight your own battle. So they charge off. Um, enter the fray, and you go off on, on your own, and you, you attack somewhere else. And um, what's going to happen to you? It won't take long, will it? You'll, you'll be made short work of. You'll be dead in a few minutes. The enemy are going to be rubbing their hands. A soldier on their own is far more vulnerable. Now, the Bible talks about becoming a Christian as being as entering into a spiritual battle. We're in a spiritual battle as believers with an enemy, and we're not meant to fight that battle alone. In fact, we can't fight it alone. We've got to be connected to other Christians, otherwise we're vulnerable. We'll be picked off in a few minutes. And the Bible doesn't talk about the, the Christian life as a kind of journey of discovery. I think this is a way that we need to be different from our culture. We, we tend to think about spirituality as a self-directed journey where it's me alone with my thoughts and my own version of God. If a soldier wants to go on his own journey of discovery, you know what's going to happen to him. We're saved into a group and we've got to stay part of a group. To, to stay alive. Now, I'm not talking here about kind of ticking a box. I'm not talking about just attending a meeting. It's easy to attend a meeting and still be disconnected. It's easy to walk in and out of a door and not really know and be known and not really be in each other's lives. And be, I'm talking about being a band of brothers and sisters. I'm talking about supporting each other, being real, being known. Not ticking a box. I'm talking about something that's about survival. It's about survival. And just notice here, Paul doesn't just find any old Christian. He finds people who he has stuff in common with. Right? He's a tent maker, believer in Jesus. He finds other tent makers because 
He knows that they can then partner together, understand each other, and support each other in what they're doing. Now, God has given each of his followers, and each person here who follows him, he's given you a path, a, a calling, a set of specific gifts and passions and opportunities. He's laid out a path for you. He's prepared for you good works to do. Right? He wants you to walk in them. And with that specific calling will come specific discouragements. There'll be specific things that you find hard about what God's called you to do for him. Right? So specific discouragements, just like Paul did, find specific friends. Find people who are doing what you feel called to do. Let's say you have a particular burden to, to pray about a certain need. Find people who have the bur- a burden to pray about the same need with you. You'll find it so encouraging. Maybe you've got a particular line of work or a particular vocation or a particular ministry that you feel called to. Find other people, other Christians that are doing the same thing. Meet with them. How can we support each other and encourage each other in what we're doing? You'll find it so encouraging. It's one reason that we try and make sure that every ministry in this church is in teams because we're made to work in teams. We're not made to be alone. That's why we want to be a church that's encouraging and supporting each other and being community together, being real and being honest. So that's the first thing Paul does. He finds friends. Let's read on from verse 4. He's found Priscilla and Aquila and then it says, Paul reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads, I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. So here's the second thing Paul does. He keeps doing what God's called him to do. He just keeps going. He's straight back to his usual pattern. He knows this is God's call on his life, so he does what he's done every other city he goes to. Goes to the synagogue, and he engages with the Jews and Greeks, tries to persuade them that Jesus is the Messiah. Um, it's what he's done in every place that he's been to so far, because he knows that's what God's called him to do. And then Silas and Timothy come along, and they, they bring a gift with them. So they've come from the churches in Macedonia, where Paul's just been. That's like uh, Thessalonica, Berea, that sort of area, Philippi. And they bring with them a gift of money for him, so that Paul can then devote himself to doing what he's doing full-time. He, he then was occupied with the word um, all, all his week, so he's able to give up temptation and do what he's doing full-time. And that would have been just a real encouragement, I think, for him, just a little boost from God. Um, he's, he's slaving away working, and then a gift comes, and it's just a little message from God. Yeah, you're doing the right thing. This is what I want you to do. Keep going. Keep going. And Paul meets the usual opposition. He goes to the synagogue, um, the Jews uh, oppose him, and they, they reject him, and he says, okay, fine, I've offered the gospel to you, um, if you're going to re- reject it, then I'm going to go to the Gentiles, the, the non-Jews in the city. Again, it's what he's done in every place he's been to so far. He's very clear on what God's called him to do. And when he encounters discouragement, he goes back to his calling, and he keeps going. He just gets on with it. You may not have heard about uh, Robert Jermaine Thomas. Anyone know who Robert Jermaine Thomas is? Right, he's, he's not very well known here, but in Korea, in South Korea, he's, uh, he's famous. He's one of the first Protestant missionaries to take the gospel to Korea. Right, he lived in the late 19th century. His story is a, a pretty difficult one. He went to China as a missionary. Um, he and his wife newly wed. After, after four months in China, she died uh, because of a miscarriage. So he's heartbroken. He goes off to North China. He meets these uh, uh, Korean uh, Christians. They're Catholics. And they want to take Bibles back into their country. He agrees to do this. And he has a sense that this is what I should be doing. And to take Bibles to Korea. So he goes there. uh, Spends two and a half months. 
on the coast of Korea, learning the language and giving Bibles out to people that he meets. Um, he goes back to China. When he goes back to China, um, the, the Korean government then begins to really crack down on Catholics in the country, and thousands of Catholics are killed in that period. And at that point, uh, this, this chap, Robert Thomas, he could easily have been discouraged. He could easily have thought, I've had a, a few months there, now I've gone away, and the door's closed because the government's against me. He could easily have given up, but he didn't. He went back to his calling, he went back to what he knew he should be doing, and he kept going. He just kept going. So he went off onto a ship. Um, this ship, this British military ship, sailed up the river to Pyongyang. Uh, in those days, it was all one Korea. Um, and the ship got into trouble. I think the, the, from the sounds of the story, the captain of the ship wasn't the brightest bloke. They kidnapped someone um, from, from the land, and they ended up getting into a battle. And this chap, Robert Thomas, died in, in the crossfire. So he became a martyr. Um, at every stop along the river, he was giving away Bibles as much as he could. And the story goes that when, the, in the final uh, battle, um, he, was, he was waving Bibles and saying, Jesus, Jesus, and, and trying to get people to, to read what he had to share with them. He died. Um, in the months, years that followed, a number of people that had been given books by him and Bibles uh, became Christians. A general uh, took one of the Bibles that he'd given and uh, wallpapered his house with the pages, and it became a place that people went to to read the words of the Bible. Um, after he died, the, the government changed their policy, and then lots and lots of Protestant missionaries were able to come into the country. And uh, less than 50 years um, after he died, nearly 150,000 people in Korea were Christian. He never saw that, but he kept going. He didn't get discouraged. Well, he probably was discouraged, but even in the midst of that, he went back to his calling, and he just kept going. So what's your pathway? It probably isn't uh, sending Bibles into countries that are opposed to Jesus. It might be, but it might not be. It probably isn't. What is it? What's God given you to do? What's the, who are the people that he's given you to love and serve? What's the work that he's given you to do in following him? It's very easy to get discouraged when we don't see results. I think we often uh, experience discouragement when we focus on the results. I think that's a mistake. I think results are God's domain. We're not, we're not supposed to focus on the fruit of what we do. We're supposed to be faithful. He calls us to be faithful, not fruitful. The fruit is his domain and not ours. Come back to your calling and keep going. That's what Paul did. I think we sometimes need to redefine what success is. I, I read a quote this week. Uh, if success is results, we will be discouraged. But um, this quote I read, success is hearing the words well done from the only lips that matter. Success is not about fruit, it's about faithfulness. So keep going. Having said that, when we do see fruit from what we're doing, it is encouraging, right? And God knows that. And he loves to encourage his people. And that's what happens next. We're going to see next what God does in the middle of Paul's discouragement. So let's pick up from verse 7, what God does. And Paul left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshipper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his, his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptised. So here's, we've seen that the two things that Paul does, and here's the first thing that God does, he brings surprising fruit. So Paul has spent a bit of time in the synagogue, and from his time in the synagogue, some people believe. One of them is this chap called Titius Justus. We think from his name, he's probably a Roman citizen. Um, he's been interested in the God of the Jews. He's come to worship the God of the Jews. Paul comes and preaches about Jesus. He becomes a Christian, and then makes his home next door to the synagogue available to Paul to preach and teach from. He's not the kind of person you would expect, necessarily, to be one of the first converts, but it's incredibly strategic. His house is right next door to the synagogue, the perfect place for Paul to base 
his ministry. The other person that becomes a Christian is this chap called Crispus. The ruler, he's a ruler of the synagogue. He would have been an upstanding member of the Jewish community. People would have looked to him for, for spiritual leadership. Um, he would have been, again, the last person you'd have expected to become a follower of Jesus, but he is. He becomes a Christian, and his whole household, including relatives and any servants or uh, people that work in his household, everyone comes to follow Jesus. Massively significant in terms of the, the spread of the gospel in that town. You've got this prominent Gentile and this prominent Jew, and that sets up what happens next. In verse 8, many, uh, uh, verse, yeah, verse eight, many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptised. So from a position of what looked like weakness comes surprising fruit. Not what you'd expect, but brilliant to see. And I think God loves to work this way. He loves to bring fruit and, and do things out of a position of weakness. Um, I remember one incident in my life a few years ago. I was invited to give a talk at a Christian Union Events Week. It was a number of years ago. They, uh, Christian unions often run these weeks where they do talks and uh, people, students invite their friends um, to hear about Jesus. I was invited to do a talk. It was near to Valentine's Day, I think, so I did a talk about God is love, 1, 1 John chapter 4. And I remember I prepared it, and I went up there, and there was this bar, and there was these students. And um, sometimes when you're giving a talk, you, just, you can tell people are following you, and sometimes when you're giving a talk, you can tell they're not. And it was one of those second instances where I could just, I could just tell I was speaking, but people weren't really following along. Um, less than halfway through, it was eyes glazed, and people looking out the window, and I was just thinking, oh, this isn't going well. And I prepared something to say, but I just didn't feel very gripping or relevant to, to their lives. Uh, the problem was, I was tied to my notes. I wasn't confident enough in what I was saying to change on the spot. So I was just like, okay, I'm going to have to keep going. So I just, I just kept going through my notes. Six pages of them. And um, it was horrible. Uh, I, I, could, I just didn't feel like I was, they were with me at all. So I just got through it, got my head down, and sat down. I felt like at the end of the talk, saying to everyone in the room, let's make an agreement that you have, this didn't happen. Let's just agree together. <laughs> you weren't here. We didn't talk about it. Um, so I, I was a bit discouraged by that and went home. Um, one of the guys in the CU, I, I was meeting with the Bible study, and he came up to me a couple of weeks later. We met, met with him, and he was really excited. He said, Happy great news. Um, this, this guy is a friend of a number of people in the Christian Union. He was there that night. He became a Christian at your talk. I was like, No. <laughs> I, I, had, I had to almost laugh. You do realise that was like the worst talk I've ever probably ever given. And he, he said, yeah, yeah that, was, that was great. God loves to bring fruit out of weakness. It's just the way he loves to work. It's the way he loves to work. And it's the way he loves to work in your life too. Maybe you're involved in something and it just feels weak. It just feels like it's not, it's not achieving anything. The, the, whatever you're involved in with serving him, it feels like it's not going anywhere. It's going backwards. God loves to bring fruits from discouragement. And you might not see the fruit. Um, I wouldn't have seen the fruit from that talk if my friend hadn't told me. I would, would never have known. You might not see the fruit from what you're doing. It, it might um, occur in a completely different place to what you expect. You might be giving yourself to this problem in front of you and you're feeling discouraged, you're feeling deflated because there's no progress. And all the while over here, something's happening and something's flourishing that you're just not looking at. So maybe it's just not where you're looking. Maybe you'll never see it because God works on different timescales. Um, Robert uh, Thomas never saw the fruit from his labours. God sometimes works on different timescales, but he loves to do this. He loves to bring surprising fruit out of weakness. So leave it to him. Leave the fruit to him. Just be faithful. But look out. 
because sometimes you'll have to show us in surprising ways. So in discouragement, he brings fruit. He also, the other thing God does is he loves to give us specific encouragements. And that's what happens next in verse 9. Let's have a look at verse 9. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. I love this. I love this because God knows just what Paul needs. God knows that Paul is finding this time in Corinth hard. Um, not only is he living with the fear of um, a mob being formed to attack him, fear for his physical safety, he's also struggling emotionally. Paul is also a Jew. He's got the same uh, traditions, the same culture, the same heritage, the same values as these people who are rejecting him and rejecting his message. They're from the same group. He would have felt a really strong identity, identity um, with them. And so it's even harder for Paul when they reject um, their own Messiah. The Jewish people are turning against him, and he's heartbroken by it. And we see that in some of Paul's other writings, how heartbroken he is by the Jews rejecting Jesus. And I think it would have been even harder for Paul in Corinth, actually, because the place that he was preaching from was next door to the synagogue, right? And that would have been really good for a lot of reasons. It was a very strategic place to be preaching from um, in terms of reaching out to Jews. But I think it would have also been very hard for Paul. It would have been just like that nicest thing pushed him a little bit further each time the Jews come for Sabbath worship and they walk straight past him and they give him the cold shoulder. I think it would have been really hard for him. And so the, the words that Jesus says to Paul in this vision, I think, it's just like an arm around him. It's just like a, a specific encouragement, uh, encouraging him where he needs it. So Jesus gives him three, three uh, commands in this vision and three promises. He says, do not be afraid, first of all. Now, do not be afraid is the command that's probably found most often on the lips of God in the Old Testament. People meet God, they meet an angel of the Lord. He says, don't be afraid, don't fear. Jesus says, don't be afraid. And Paul says, oh yeah, Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. He's the one who's speaking to me, who spoke to all those people. He's saying, don't fear. Jesus says, go on speaking and don't be silent. He's saying, the work that you're doing here, that's the work I've called you to. You're doing the right thing. Keep going. Keep going. He says, I am with you. Promise number one. I am with you. Again, possibly the promise that's on the lips of God most often in the Old Testament. I am with you. I am with you. You'll be my people and I'll be your God. I'm with you. Again, I'm that God. I'm the same God for you as I was for my people through history. No one will attack you to harm you. The, 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 the suffering you've experienced and all the things you've been in, that's not going to happen here. You'll be okay. I'm with you. I've got you. And finally, I think what might have been most encouraging for Paul, I have many in this city who are my people. What a great promise for Paul to hear. What a great promise. I have many in this city who are my people. The, the word people there was the word that was used to describe the people of God in the Old Testament. Um, so Paul would have uh, known from that. Oh, God's got people in this city who are, uh, they're, they're mixed people, they're Jew and Greek. Um, Paul's feeling sad about God's chosen people rejecting Jesus. He's feeling grieved by that, it's weighing on him. And Jesus says, I've got my people in this city and they're mixed and, you're, and I'm, I'm doing a new thing. I'm building the church out of Jew and Gentile and you're my chosen Jew for that, so keep going. I'm in this, I've got this. It was a specific encouragement designed for Paul's specific discouragement. And actually we read on, we're not going to look at it in detail, but verse 12 to 17 there, we see that God then backs up his promise, no one's going to attack you, to harm you. A, a, a mob forms of Jews to attack Paul, but then before um, they can, he, he can even make his defence, Gallio, who's the 
the proconsul, he just dismisses it. He says, no, you're not going to attack him. Deal with it yourself. And Paul's kept safe. Right? So God follows through on his promise. He keeps Paul safe. No harm comes to him. You might have had this experience where you've been finding something hard and God's brought a specific encouragement into your life. I can think of many times in my life it has happened. Um, so a few years ago, um, about this time, four years ago actually, we were thinking about um, me leaving my work. I, I used to work in engineering and, and we decided that it was the right time for me to, to finish my job and I would work for the church part-time and I'd study part-time. So I went from having a full salary um, to having half a salary. And half a salary you can't really feed a family on, uh, like a full salary. And the idea was the other half of our income would be provided by support. Uh, we're doing this, this ancient practice actually that's uh, modelled here of Christians financially supporting those who want to be doing full-time ministry. So we said, well, we'll go for it. Difference was, Paul uh, was given the gift before he set out, and we didn't have the gift before we set out. So we decided to do this, and then we communicated with people, uh, all the Christians we knew, and said, we're doing this, would you like to support us? And then we sat and we waited and we prayed. And it was a step of faith, and it was a risk to go from full salary to half salary, but God provided. And for the last four years, there have been so many ways in which God has provided for us financially that I, I can't name them all. Just, just one stands out to me, a specific one from last year, so end of last year, December. Um, we, we needed new phones, and if you'd seen my phone towards the end of last year, you would have agreed it was completely cracked. And it came to the point where, okay, I need to replace this, it's going to be slow now. So I did all my, my um, research. The way that we do our phones, uh, we have to pay a bit up front, so I, I kind of worked it all out and decided what it would be, researched the right phones. It was coming to about, say, £400 to buy two phones from Hannah. £415.98, actually, to be precise. And so I, it was December, though, and December's an expensive month, so I thought, okay, we need these phones, but I'll try and wait till January. Um, but I've kind of done all the calculations. Mid-December, um, we get a gift, and the gift is £415. And uh, I, I knew that was the amount we needed. I just thought, why would someone give me £415, give us £415? You would give £400 or 450 normally, right? £450, just the amount we needed. It was a specific encouragement when I was specifically a bit concerned about, about money. We were a little bit tight at the time. It was an encouragement. And so many ways that God has done that for us over the years. And I'm sure there are many people here who can share similar stories of ways that God has just provided for them at just the right time. So, if you're discouraged in the work that God's got for you, why not ask him for a specific encouragement? Why not? Why not do it? It's a prayer I actually pray quite often. I say, God, bring an encouragement into my day, someone else's day, just something specific to, so that we know that you're there. And that kind of thing, it's not a proof that God exists, right? There could be another explanation. But because I know he exists, it's evidence that he cares. It's evidence that he's kind. So ask God for something, and then watch for an answer. Maybe it'll be a friend saying a word that's just right at the right time. Maybe it'll be a, a circumstance in life that just changes in the way that you need it to at just the right moment. Something you read in the Bible, in the book, something you hear. Just a, a feeling that comes over you at just the right moment. Pray for encouragement. Pray for something specific and watch for an answer. So while Paul was in Corinth, he actually wrote a couple of letters. Um, one of the letters he wrote was um, 1 Thessalonians. And in the letter to the Thessalonians he writes from Corinth, He's, in, he, he's, he's encouraged by them. He starts the letter, he's encouraged by their faith and their hope and their love. And one of the things he says, verses 5 and 6 of 1 Thessalonians, he says, one of the evidences that God was at work in you was that you received the word with, with affliction. 
Why am I saying that? Paul says, it's evidence that you're a real Christian that you've entered into the battle. Okay, that's what we're to expect. That's what Christians are to expect. It's worth all of us being aware of that. You're saved into a battle. You should expect discouragement because you've got an enemy who wants to discourage you. You've got an enemy who wants to um, make you focus on the setbacks and turn your eyes to the frustrations. So expect it, but there are things you can do about it and and there are things that God wants to do about it. So don't try and fight alone. Don't try and fight the battle alone. Find friends who can support you. Go back to your calling and keep going. Keep going with what God's called us to do. And look for specific fruit. Expect him to do things that you don't expect. And look for specific encouragements. Pray for them and expect them and account for them. Do it because that's the kind of God he is. He's the kind of God who loves to encourage his children when they're discouraged in the street. He loves doing it. So ask him for it. Ask him for it. And if you don't know this God yet, if you're looking in, don't expect being a Christian to be easy, but expect it to be better than you could ever imagine. It'll be harder than you think, and it'll be better than you dream. And if you'd like to find out more, like I said earlier, we've got a 3 to one course coming up. You can dip your toe in, find out who God is, what we're about. We'd love to talk to you about that. Why don't we pray? Why don't we pray and ask God to be at work in all that we're facing. Father, we do thank you that you are a God who loves to encourage your children when they're discouraged. I pray for any here who are experiencing specific discouragements at the moment in whatever area of their life it might be. Father, would you bring specific encouragements into their life? Um, Not as an evidence that you exist, but because they know you exist, as an evidence of your kindness. Father, would you do that even today, even this evening, uh, this week, we pray. Um, Give us all just that bit more of an insight into your heart for us, which is a heart of fatherly love and care. Thank you, Lord, that's who you are. Amen.